0: Chapter 18 of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, September 2007. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. CHAPTER Eighteen, ENGLAND UNDER EDWARD III Roger Mortimer, the queen's lover, who escaped to France in the last chapter, was far from profiting by the examples he had had of the fate of favorites. Having, through the queen's influence, come into possession of the estates of the two despensers, he became extremely proud and ambitious, and sought to be the real ruler of England. The young king, who was crowned at fourteen years of age, with all the usual solemnities, resolved not to bear this, and soon pursued Mortimer to his ruin. The people themselves were not fond of Mortimer, first because he was a royal favorite, secondly because he was supposed to have helped to make a peace with Scotland which now took place, and in virtue of which the young king's sister Joan, only seven years old, was promised in marriage to David the son and heir of Robert Bruce, who was only five years old. The nobles hated Mortimer because of his pride, riches, and power. They went so far as to take up arms against him, but were obliged to submit. The Earl of Kent, one of those who did so, but who afterwards went over to Mortimer and the Queen, was made an example of in the following cruel manner. He seems to have been anything but a wise old earl, and he was persuaded by the agents of the Favourite and the Queen, that poor King Edward II was not really dead, and thus was betrayed into writing letters, favouring his rightful claim to the throne. This was made out to be high treason, and he was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to be executed. They took the poor old lord outside the town of Winchester, and there kept him waiting some three or four hours until they could find somebody to cut off his head. At last a convict said he would do it if the government would pardon him in return, and they gave him the pardon, and at one blow he put the Earl of Kent out of his last suspense. While the Queen was in France she had found a lovely and good young lady named Philippa, who, she thought, would make an excellent wife for her son. The young King married this lady soon after he came to the throne, and her first child, Edward. Prince of Wales, afterwards became celebrated, as we shall presently see, under the famous title of Edward the Black Prince. The young king, thinking the time ripe for the downfall of Mortimer, took counsel with the Lord Montacute how he should proceed. A parliament was going to be held at Nottingham, and that lord recommended that the favourite should be seized by night in Nottingham Castle, where he was sure to be. Now this, like many other things, was more easily said than done, because, to guard against treachery, the great gates of the castle were locked every night, and the great keys were carried upstairs to the queen, who laid them under her own pillow. But the castle had a governor, and the governor, being Lord Montacute's friend, confided to him how he knew of a secret passage underground, hidden from observation by the weeds and brambles with which it was overgrown and how through that passage the conspirators might enter in the dead of the night and go straight to mortimer's room accordingly upon a certain dark night at midnight they made their way through this dismal place startling the rats and frightening the owls and bats and came safely to the bottom of the main tower of the castle where the king met them and took them up a profoundly dark staircase in a deep silence they soon heard the voice of mortimer in council with some friends and bursting into the room with a sudden noise took him prisoner the queen cried out from her bedchamber oh my sweet son my dear son spare my gentle mortimer they carried him off however and before the next parliament accused him of having made differences between the young king and his mother and of having brought about the death of the earl of kent and even of the late king for, as you know by this time, when they wanted to get rid of a man in those old days, they were not very particular of what they accused him. Mortimer was found guilty of all this, and was sentenced to be hanged at Tyburn. The king shut his mother up in genteel confinement, where she passed the rest of her life, and now he became king in earnest. The first effort he made was to conquer Scotland, the English lords who had lands in Scotland, finding that their rights were not respected under the late peace, made war on their own account, choosing for their general Edward, the son of John Balliol, who made such a vigorous fight that in less than two months he won the whole Scottish kingdom. He was joined, when thus triumphant, by the King and Parliament, and he and the King in person besieged the Scottish forces in Berwick. THE WHOLE SCOTTISH ARMY COMING TO THE ASSISTANCE OF THEIR COUNTRYMEN, SUCH A FURIOUS BATTLE ENSUED THAT THIRTY THOUSAND MEN ARE SAID TO HAVE BEEN KILLED IN IT. Baliol WAS THEN CROWNED KING OF SCOTLAND, DOING HOMAGE TO THE KING OF ENGLAND. BUT LITTLE CAME OF HIS SUCCESSES AFTER ALL, FOR THE SCOTTISH MEN ROSE AGAINST HIM WITHIN NO VERY LONG TIME, AND DAVID BRUCE CAME BACK WITHIN TEN YEARS AND TOOK HIS KINGDOM. France was a far richer country than Scotland, and the king had a much greater mind to conquer it. So he let Scotland alone, and pretended that he had a claim to the French throne in right of his mother. He had, in reality, no claim at all, but that mattered little in those times. He brought over to his cause many little princes and sovereigns, and even courted the alliance of the people of Flanders, a busy working community who had very small respect for kings, and whose head man was a brewer. With such forces as he raised by these means, Edward invaded France, but he did little by that, except run into debt in carrying on the war to the extent of three hundred thousand pounds. The next year he did better, gaining a great sea-fight in the harbor of Sloughs. This success, however, was very short-lived, for the Flemings took fright at the siege of St. Omer, and ran away, leaving their weapons and baggage behind them. Philip the French king, coming up with his army, and Edward being very anxious to decide the war, proposed to settle the difference by single combat with him, or by a fight of one hundred knights on each side. The French king said he thanked him, but being very well as he was, he would rather not. So, after some skirmishing and talking a short peace was made. It was soon broken by King Edward's favouring the cause of John, Earl of Montford, a French nobleman, who asserted a claim of his own against the French king, and offered to do homage to England, for the crown of France, if he could obtain it through England's help. This French lord himself was soon defeated by the French king's son, and shut up in a tower in Paris. But his wife, a courageous and beautiful woman, who is said to have had the courage of a man and the heart of a lion, assembled the people of Brittany, where she then was, and, showing them her infant son, made many pathetic entreaties to them not to desert her and their young lord. They took fire at this appeal, and rallied round her in the strong castle of Hennebon. Here she was not only besieged without by the French under Charles de Blois, but was endangered within by a dreary old bishop who was always representing to the people what horrors they must undergo if they were faithful, first from famine, and afterwards from fire and sword. But this noble lady, whose heart never failed her, encouraged her soldiers by her own example, went from post to post like a great general. Even mounted on horseback, fully armed, and issuing from the castle by a by-path, fell upon the French camp, set fire to the tents, and threw the whole force into disorder. This done, she got safely back to Hennebon again, and was received with loud shouts of joy by the defenders of the castle, who had given her up for lost. As they were now very short of provisions, however, and as they could not dine off enthusiasm, and as the old bishop was always saying, I told you what it would come to, they began to lose heart, and to talk of yielding the castle up. The brave Countess, retiring to an upper room, and looking with great grief out to sea, where she expected relief from England, saw at this very time the English ships in the distance, and was relieved and rescued. Sir Walter Manning, the English commander, so admired her courage, that, being come into the castle with the English knights, and having made a feast there, he assaulted the French by way of dessert, and beat them off triumphantly. Then he and the knights came back to the castle with great joy, and the countess, who had watched them from a high tower, thanked them with all her heart, and kissed them, every one. This noble lady distinguished herself afterwards in a sea-fight with the French off Guernsey, when she was on her way to England to ask for more troops. Her great spirit roused another lady, the wife of another French lord, whom the French king very barbarously murdered, to distinguish herself scarcely less. The time was fast coming, however, when Edward, Prince of Wales, was to be the great star of this French and English war. It was in the month of July, in the year 1,346, when the King embarked at Southampton for France, with an army of about 30,000 men in all, attended by the Prince of Wales and by several of the chief nobles. He landed at La Hogue in Normandy, and burning and destroying as he went according to custom advanced up the left bank of the river seine and fired the small towns even close to paris but being watched from the right bank of the river by the french king and all his army it came to this at last that edward found himself on saturday the twenty-sixth of august one thousand three hundred and forty-six on a rising ground behind the little french village of Crissy, face to face with the French king's force, and although the French king had an enormous army, in number more than eight times his, he there resolved to beat him, or be beaten. The young prince, assisted by the Earl of Oxford and the Earl of Warwick, led the first division of the English army. Two other great earls led the second, and the king the third. When the morning dawned, the king received the sacrament, and heard prayers— and then, mounted on horseback, with a white wand in his hand, rode from company to company, and rank to rank, cheering and encouraging both officers and men. Then the whole army breakfasted, each man sitting on the ground where he had stood, and then they remained quietly on the ground, with their weapons ready. Up came the French king with all his great force. It was dark and angry weather, there was an eclipse of the sun, There was a thunderstorm, accompanied with tremendous rain. The frightened birds flew screaming above the soldiers' heads. A certain captain in the French army advised the French king, who was by no means cheerful, not to begin the battle until the morrow. The king, taking this advice, gave the word to halt. But those behind, not understanding it, or desiring to be foremost with the rest, came pressing on. The roads for a great distance were covered with this immense army, and with the common people from the villages, who were flourishing their rude weapons and making a great noise. Owing to these circumstances, the French army advanced in the greatest confusion, every French lord doing what he liked with his own men, and putting out the men of every other French lord. Now their king relied strongly upon a great body of crossbowmen from Genoa and these he ordered to the front to begin the battle, on finding that he could not stop it. They shouted once, they shouted twice, they shouted three times to alarm the English archers. But the English would have heard them shout three thousand times, and would have never moved. At last the crossbowmen went forward a little, and began to discharge their bolts, upon which the English let fly such a hail of arrows that the Genoese speedily made off for their crossbows, besides being heavy to carry, required to be wound up with a handle, and consequently took time to reload. The English, on the other hand, could discharge their arrows almost as fast as the arrows could fly. When the French king saw the Genoese turning, he cried out to his men to kill those scoundrels who were doing harm instead of service. This increased the confusion. Meanwhile, the English archers, Continuing to shoot as fast as ever, shot down great numbers of the French soldiers and knights, whom certain sly Cornishmen and Welshmen from the English army, creeping along the ground, dispatched with great knives. The prince and his division were at this time so hard pressed that the Earl of Warwick sent a message to the king, who was overlooking the battle from a windmill, beseeching him to send more aid. Is my son killed? said the king. "'No, sire, please God,' returned the messenger. "'Is he wounded?' said the king. "'No, sire. "'Is he thrown to the ground?' said the king. "'No, sire, not so, but he is very hard-pressed.' "'Then,' said the king, "'go back to those who sent you, "'and tell them I shall send no aid. "'Because I set my heart upon my son, "'proving himself this day a brave knight, "'and because I am resolved, please God,' THAT THE HONOR OF A GREAT VICTORY SHALL BE HIS." THESE BOLD WORDS, BEING REPORTED TO THE PRINCE AND HIS DIVISION, SO RAISED THEIR SPIRITS THAT THEY FOUGHT BETTER THAN EVER. THE KING OF FRANCE CHARGED GALLANTLY WITH HIS MEN MANY TIMES, BUT IT WAS OF NO USE. NIGHT CLOSING IN, HIS HORSE WAS KILLED UNDER HIM BY AN ENGLISH ARROW, AND THE KNIGHTS AND NOBLES, WHO HAD CLUSTERED THICK ABOUT HIM EARLY IN THE DAY, WERE NOW COMPLETELY SCATTERED. At last some of his few remaining followers led him off the field by force, since he would not retire of himself, and they journeyed away to Amiens. The victorious English, lighting their watch-fires, made merry on the field, and the king, riding to meet his gallant son, took him in his arms, kissed him, and told him that he had acted nobly, and proved himself worthy of the day and of the crown. While it was yet night, King Edward was hardly aware of the great victory he had gained, but next day it was discovered that eleven princes, twelve hundred knights, and thirty thousand common men lay dead upon the French side. Among these was the king of Bohemia, an old blind man, who, having been told that his son was wounded in the battle, and that no force could stand against the black prince, called to him two knights, put himself on horseback between them, fastened the three bridles together, and dashed in among the English, where he was presently slain. He bore as his crest three white ostrich-feathers, with the motto Ick Dien, signifying in English I serve. This crest and motto were taken by the Prince of Wales in remembrance of that famous day, and have been borne by the Prince of Wales ever since. Five days after this great battle the king laid siege to Calais, This siege, ever afterwards memorable, lasted nearly a year. In order to starve the inhabitants out, King Edward built so many wooden houses for the lodgings of his troops, that it is said their quarters looked like a second calais, suddenly sprung around the first. Early in the siege the governor of the town drove out what he called the useless mouths, to the number of seventeen hundred persons, men and women, young and old king edward allowed them to pass through his lines and even fed them and dismissed them with money but later in the siege he was not so merciful five hundred more who were afterwards driven out dying of starvation and misery the garrison were so hard pressed at last that they sent a letter to king philip telling him that they had eaten all the horses all the dogs and all the rats and mice that could be found in the place and that if he did not relieve them they must either surrender to the English, or eat one another. Philip made one effort to give them relief, but they were so hemmed in by the English power that he could not succeed, and was fain to leave the place. Upon this they hoisted the English flag, and surrendered to King Edward. "'Tell your general,' said he to the humble messengers who came out of the town, that I require to have sent here six of the most distinguished citizens, bare-legged and in their shirts." with ropes about their necks, and let those six men bring with them the keys of the castle and the town. When the governor of Calais related this to the people in the marketplace, there was great weeping and distress, in the midst of which one worthy citizen, named Eustache de Saint-Pierre, rose up and said that if the six men required were not sacrificed, the whole population would be. Therefore he offered himself as the first. ENCOURAGED BY THIS BRIGHT EXAMPLE, FIVE OTHER WORTHY CITIZENS ROSE UP, ONE AFTER ANOTHER, AND OFFERED THEMSELVES TO SAVE THE REST. THE GOVERNOR, WHO WAS TOO BADLY WOUNDED TO BE ABLE TO WALK, MOUNTED A POOR OLD HORSE THAT HAD NOT BEEN EATEN, AND CONDUCTED THESE GOOD MEN TO THE GATE, WHILE ALL THE PEOPLE CRIED AND MOURNED. EDWARD RECEIVED THEM WRATHFULLY, AND ORDERED THE HEADS OF THE WHOLE SIX TO BE STRUCK OFF, However, the good queen fell upon her knees, and besought the king to give them up to her. The king replied, I wish you had been somewhere else, but I cannot refuse you. So she had them properly dressed, made a feast for them, and sent them back with a handsome present, to the great rejoicing of the whole camp. I hope the people of Calais loved the daughter to whom she gave birth soon afterwards, for her gentle mother's sake. Now came that terrible disease, the plague into europe hurrying from the heart of china and killed the wretched people especially the poor in such enormous numbers that one half of the inhabitants of england are related to have died of it it killed the cattle in great numbers too and so few working men remained alive that there were not enough left to till the ground after eight years of differing and quarrelling the prince of wales again invaded france with an army of sixty thousand men. He went through the south of the country, burning and plundering wheresoever he went, while his father, who had still the Scottish war upon his hands, did the like in Scotland, but was harassed and worried in his retreat from that country by the Scottish men, who repaid his cruelties with interest. The French King Philip was now dead, and was succeeded by his son John. The black prince, called by that name from the colour of the armour he wore, to set off his fair complexion, continuing to burn and destroy in France, roused John into determined opposition, and so cruel had the black prince been in his campaign, and so severely had the French peasants suffered, that he could not find one who, for love or money, or the fear of death, would tell him what the French king was doing, or where he was." Thus it happened that he came upon the French king's forces, all of a sudden, near the town of Poitiers, and found that the whole neighboring country was occupied by a vast French army. "'God help us,' said the black prince. "'We must make the best of it.' So on a Sunday morning, the 18th of September, the prince, whose army was now reduced to ten thousand men in all, prepared to give battle to the French king, who had sixty thousand horse alone. While he was so engaged, there came riding from the French camp a cardinal, who had persuaded John to let him offer terms, and try to save the shedding of Christian blood. Save my honour, said the prince to this good priest, and save the honour of my army, and I will make any reasonable terms. He offered to give up all the towns, castles, and prisoners he had taken and to swear to make no war in France for seven years. But, as John would hear of nothing but his surrender, with a hundred of his chief knights the treaty was broken off, and the prince said quietly, God defend the right, we shall fight to-morrow. Therefore, on the Monday morning, at break of day, the two armies prepared for battle— the english were posted in a strong place which could only be approached by one narrow lane skirted by hedges on both sides the french attacked them by this lane but were so galled and slain by english arrows from behind the hedges that they were forced to retreat then went six hundred english bowmen round about and coming upon the rear of the french army rained arrows on them thick and fast the french knights thrown into confusion quitted their banners, and dispersed in all directions. Said Sir John Chandos to the prince, Ride forward, noble prince, and the day is yours. The king of France is so valiant a gentleman, that I know he will never fly, and may be taken prisoner. Said the prince to this, Advance English banners, in the name of God and St. George. And on they pressed, until they came up with the French king, fighting fiercely with his battle-axe and, when all his nobles had forsaken him, attended faithfully to the last by his youngest son Philip, only sixteen years of age. Father and son fought well, and the king had already two wounds in his face, and had been beaten down, when he at last delivered himself to a banished French knight, and gave him his right-hand glove, in token that he had done so. The black prince was generous as well as brave, and he invited the royal prisoner to supper in his tent, and waited upon him at table, and, when they afterwards rode into London in a gorgeous procession, mounted the French king on a fine, cream-coloured horse, and rode at his side on a little pony. This was all very kind, but I think it was, perhaps, a little theatrical, too, and has been made more meritorious than it deserved to be. Especially, as I am inclined to think, the greatest kindness to the King of France would have been not to have shown him to the people at all. However, it must be said, for these acts of politeness, that in course of time they did much to soften the horrors of war and the passions of conquerors. It was a long, long time before the common soldiers began to have the benefit of such courtly deeds. But they did at last and thus it is possible that a poor soldier who asked for quarter at the battle of Waterloo, or any other such great fight, may have owed his life indirectly to Edward the Black Prince. At this time there stood in the Strand in London a palace called the Savoy, which was given up to the captive King of France and his son for their residence. As the King of Scotland had now been King Edward's captive for eleven years too, his success was, at this time tolerably complete. The Scottish business was settled by the prisoner being released under the title of Sir David, King of Scotland, and by his engaging to pay a large ransom. The State of France encouraged England to propose harder terms to that country, where the people rose against the unspeakable cruelty and barbarity of its nobles, where the nobles rose in turn against the people, where the most frightful outrages were committed on all sides, and where the insurrection of the peasants, called the insurrection of the Jacquerie, from Jacques, a common Christian name among the country-people of France, awakened terrors and hatreds that have scarcely yet passed away. A treaty called the Great Peace was at last signed, under which King Edward agreed to give up the greater part of his conquests, and King John to pay, within six years, a ransom of three million crowns of gold he was so beset by his own nobles and courtiers for having yielded to these conditions, though they could help him to know better, that he came back of his own will to his old palace prison of the Savoy, and there died. There was a sovereign of Castile at that time, called Pedro the Cruel, who deserved the name remarkably well, having committed, among other cruelties, a variety of murders. This amiable monarch, being driven from his throne for his crimes, went to the province of Bordeaux, where the black prince, now married to his cousin Joan, a pretty widow, was residing and besought his help. The prince, who took to him much more kindly than a prince of such fame ought to have taken to such a ruffian, readily listened to his fair promises, and, agreeing to help him, sent secret orders to some troublesome disbanded soldiers of his and his father's who called themselves the Free Companions, and who had been a pest to the French people, for some time to aid this Pedro. The Prince himself, going into Spain to head the army of relief, soon set Pedro on his throne again, where he no sooner found himself than, of course, he behaved like the villain he was, broke his word without the least shame, and abandoned all the promises he had made to the Black Prince. Now it had cost the prince a good deal of money to pay soldiers to support this murderous king, and finding himself, when he came back disgusted to Bordeaux, not only in bad health, but deeply in debt, he began to tax his French subjects to pay his creditors. They appealed to the French king Charles. War broke out again, and the French town of Limoges, which the prince had greatly benefited, went over to the French king. Upon this he ravaged the province of which it was the capital, burnt and plundered, and killed in the old sickening way, and refused mercy to the prisoners, men, women, and children, taken in the offending town, though he was so ill and so much in need of pity himself from heaven, that he was carried in a litter. He lived to come home and make himself popular with the people and Parliament, and he died on Trinity Sunday, the 8th of June, 1,376, at forty-six years old. The whole nation mourned for him as one of the most renowned and beloved princes it had ever had, and he was buried with great lamentations in Canterbury Cathedral. Near to the tomb of Edward the Confessor, his monument, with his figure carved in stone, and represented in the old black armor, laying on its back, may be seen at this day, with an ancient coat of mail, a helmet, and a pair of gauntlets hanging from a beam above it, which most people like to believe were once worn by the black prince king edward did not outlive his renowned son long he was old and one alice perer a beautiful lady had contrived to make him so fond of her in his old age that he could refuse her nothing and made himself ridiculous she little deserved his love or what i dare say she valued a great deal more the jewels of the late queen "'which he gave her among other rich presents. "'She took the very ring from his finger "'on the morning of the day when he died, "'and left him to be pillaged by his faithless servants. "'Only one good priest was true to him, "'and attended him to the last. "'Besides being famous for the great victories I have related, "'the reign of King Edward III "'was rendered memorable in better ways "'by the growth of architecture "'and the erection of Windsor Castle.' in better ways still, by the rising up of Wycliffe, originally a poor parish priest, who devoted himself to exposing, with wonderful power and success, the ambition and corruption of the Pope, and of the whole church of which he was the head. Some of those Flemings were induced to come to England in this reign, too, and to settle in Norfolk, where they made better woolen cloths than the English had ever had before. The order of the garter, a very fine thing in its way, but hardly so important as a good close for the nation, also dates from this period. The king is said to have picked up a lady's garter at a ball, and to have said, Honi sot ki mali pence, in English, evil be to him who evil thinks of it. The courtiers were usually glad to imitate what the king said or did, and hence, from a slight incident, the order of the garter was instituted, and became a great dignity. So the story goes. End of chapter 18